Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to Club Book with Marie Myung Oakley. My name is Kim Park Nelson. I am the director and uh, the director and an associate professor of ethnic studies at the Bonona State University here in the state of Minnesota. I teach comparative race and ethnic studies and Asian American studies, and I research Asian and other transnational adoption. I'm so honored to be here um, and to be in conversation with Marie tonight. Before we begin, some business. Club Book is a unique and very special series by MELSA, the Metro Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. St. Paul Public Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red, Red Balloon Bookshop, not for the main event. Marie Myung Oak Lee is a treasured voice in Korean American literature. Her latest novel, The Evening Hero, follows the trials and travails of Korean obstetrician Dr. Youngman Kwok. In the wake of the Korean War, Kwok leaves his family and village to pursue the American dream in rural Minnesota. Lee's poignant time-jumping narrative encompasses rural hospital closures, anti-Asian Asian racism, and how war trauma seeps into everyday life for an immigrant things that have become suddenly more urgent and topical. Lee is also an accomplished YA writer. Her groundbreaking Finding My Voice, first published in 1992, is often credited as the first contemporary set young adult novel written by an Asian American author and featuring Asian American protagonists. It was re-released in 2021. I'm happy to share that Lee is returning to YA next month with Hurt You, this contemporary take on John, the John Steinbeck classic of Mice and Men is told from a Korean-American and non-neurotypical perspective. In addition to her own writing, Lee is the co-founder of the Asian American Writers Workshop, who sends me many, many emails about their uh, prolific programming, which I really appreciate, and director of the Asian American Diasporic Writers Series at Columbia University. In a minute, I will turn it over to Marie to give some introductory remarks about the book, and then I'll be asking her some questions. Before we end, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your comments in the thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook, or send an email to clubbookmn 
at gmail.com. Marie, I'm going to turn it over to you. Great. Hi, Dr. Park Nelson. So excited to be here. Uh, thank you to Melza and the St. Paul Public Library and everyone for tuning in. I'm saying hello to you from Harlem, New York City. And it is it got really dark early. I'm <laughs> feeling kind of lonely. So I'm really happy to be here to talk about my novel, The Evening Hero. Um, I was going to start by reading a little bit. Um, it The book is actually like really large. So, and I've been working on it for 18 years. So um, I'll try to keep it really short just to give you a little taste of it. But because I've been working on it for so long, I have this urge. I just want to like just read it the whole thing to you, but I won't do that. Um, let me think what I should talk to you about what the book is about. Um, the main character is Dr. Yung-Man Kwok, and he is a Korean war refugee who's been living in a fictional town called Horses Breath, Minnesota for the last four years, where he has been the town's OBGYN which means that he has basically delivered several generations of the town's babies. And he's become an integral part of this town. He's very well liked. Um, they're the sole Korean family in this all white town. And despite you know that he's he knows everybody, a lot of people don't, they don't know that much about him. And a lot of people don't ask either. Um, so some of the book has to do with Yongwon is in his 70s, and there is a, as is happening actually a lot in rural Minnesota right now, there was a corporate takeover of his hospital. He doesn't know it yet, but he's going to lose his job. And his son, Einstein, is an adult. He's also an OBGYN, but he's just moved back to Minneapolis to work at a bro-type startup in the Mall of America. And he's trying, and he's inviting Youngman to sort of join this for-profit medical practice. And Youngman is kind of at these crossroads because his whole life he's been a healer. But what does he do now? Like he's he's older, like a lot of doctors in rural areas. Um, he he feels like he still has a lot to give. But is this kind of for-profit medicine what he wants to do? And at the same time, when he was a child, he did something awful in Korea. And this is a secret that he has tried to leave behind. Um, that was one of the reasons that he immigrated. And at this time, when there's so much tumult in his life, he's getting these letters from Korea that are indicating that the secret that he so worked hard to leave behind and forget has not forgotten him. So some of the book toggles between the past and the present. We also see his childhood in North Korea and how he gets out of North Korea and what happens to him during the Korean War. And a lot of it has to do with, so the people in Horses Breath just see this little Asian man and they don't understand this huge epic story that he has behind him. And for Yongman, his big question is, is he just gonna live, how is he gonna live out the rest of his life? And is he just gonna kind of let the secret hopefully die with him? Or is he gonna have the courage to face up to what he did? And the big question is, is there a too late for something like this? So what I'm gonna read to you is just two small parts from the beginning, just to give you a little bit of a taste of the tone of the book. Um, because as mentioned, it's 450 pages. 
So I'm actually, yeah, I'm just gonna read a little bit from, from almost the very beginning. The Finnish name Mackie was by far the most common surname in the town. Whether on the ER whiteboard, in the high school honor roll in the paper or in the phone book, young Mon was continually squinting into a thicket of Mackies. There she was, Lorraine Mackie, the one who had called this morning. Hello, Mrs. Mackie. He was pleased to see her already hooked up to the fetal heart monitor, the two sensors correctly placed. Guess it wasn't the hot dish, huh? She burped delicately. He watched the monitor. She was in labor all right. The baby's heartbeat flattened and then bounced back nicely after each contraction, no D-cells. An uneventful advancing delivery. He often became crampy himself when it was time to push. He felt faint twinges in his pelvis area now. This baby would be out by early afternoon. Young Man made sure she had plenty of ice chips to chew on and told her to call a nurse if she was uncomfortable. Lorraine Mackey smiled at him. I don't even need Stadol. I'm fine. You're a tough cookie. These descendants of pioneers, Young Man thought admiringly. He went to the supply closet and made sure the instruments and vacuum suction were there if he needed them. Things had a way of disappearing from the closet these days. Dr. Quack, said Patsy, the ER nurse from behind him. Mrs. Mackey said her water never broke. I have the amnio hook if you need it. Hello, Patsy, young man said. Were you the one who hooked her up to the fetal monitor? She nodded vigorously. You can't work in the emergency department for up to 30 years and not pick up on some stuff. Mr. Tinklenberg keeps saying, we have to remember that the ER and OP are the quote unquote brand introductions to the hospital. She rolled her eyes. Probably no one was a fan of the president, Tinklenberg, his officiousness or that he didn't seem to care that he remained an outsider in horse's breath, even though he'd been here for two years now, a single man for whom the hospital bought one of the biggest houses in town, when the 2008 mortgage crisis had caused so many townspeople to lose theirs. I heard she delivers fast. That's why I wrote FedEx on the board, get it? I do get it, said young man. He was not always happy about the lingo the ER staff used among themselves. So many staff were talking about raccoons recently. He thought there had been some kind of infestation before figuring out that raccoons was what they called opiate overdoses for the dark shadows and hollows that users had around their eyes. But each department had its way and he needed to operate within the ER's parameters to coexist with his medical brethren. Patsy at least was willing to extend herself. The temp ER nurses Tinklenberg had brought in after firing the regulars would openly reject his polite that they would get the patient that they would get a patient a birthing ball. Not my job. Ken, the internist, glanced at the ER board as he passed by. Mrs. Mackey is a FedEx? He asked. Same day delivery, called Patsy. In utero, the baby was young man's responsibility. Ex-utero, Ken's. The two men had a well-oiled handoff routine. 
It helped the two doctors not only respected each other, but were also best friends. I plan on as early as mid-afternoon, young man said, returning to his office. His secretary, Rose, had, had slipped a schedule on young man's desk. Today was clinic day. Every day was, every slot was taken. He'd have to finish his morning inpatient rounds promptly and then get started on the lineup of women who needed birth control, STD checks, and annual exams. He liked to complain about how busy he was, especially lately. But the truth was, he loved his work, even in a small way. He mattered. So this next scene is just a quick little scene where uh, young man doesn't realize it yet, but he's about to become a victim of rural hospital closure. On the third floor, the business floor, where Youngman rarely went, he saw that they had not been called to a private meeting. It was being held in their conference room, the same one where they had their monthly morbidity and mortality conferences, and it was packed with doctors. There was only one chair open, and Ken had his arm resting on the back of it. Dr. Kwok, he said, and pointed. The door opened. Mitzner, the surgeon, strode in. A tall man with a stoop from both age and decades of leaning over an OR table. He'd once looked like Charles Lindbergh, but now his shiny bald pate was strategically covered by a Minnesota twin surgical cap. Mitzner stood behind Jungmann and crossed his hairy forearms. Jungmann turned partly around. Hello, Dr. Mitzner, he said. It was a civic duty, he felt, to be pleasant to everyone in the workplace, no matter how he was feeling or felt about that person. Ahoy, old Dr. Quack, he replied. Ugh, Mitzner hadn't deployed Dr. Quack in ages. Youngman had even dared hope that odious nickname had gone on to the graveyard of unfunny jokes. He recalled with some shame that when he had first started at Horse's Breath General, he didn't even know Mitzner was making fun of him. Youngman still had trouble getting used to the heavily Scandinavian-Canadian inflection of Horse's Breather's speech. Jeet, Rose would say for, did you eat? And he had chalked up quack to a regional dialect. Indeed, some Horse's Breathers cleaved quack into two syllables, ka-whack. But Youngman vividly recalled Mitzner hellowing him and shaking his hand, saying, So nice to meet you. Dr. Quack, isn't it? He had stagely winked at some passing nurses the way the GIs had during the war when trying to get the attention of a Korean woman. Later, Young A, Youngman's wife, whose English was much more sophisticated than his, explained that Quack was like being called a Torbhari surgeon, a pseudo doctor. What an insult! Mitzner looked down at him and winked again. Young man kept his face pleasant. He was highly allergic to conflict. But speaking of old, he said extra pleasantly, isn't your birthday coming up, Dr. Mitzner? Mitzner was going to be 80, the oldest grape on the vine. Young man was nobody's chump. He turned back in his seat. Thanks so much, Marie, for, for reading those parts of your book. I think it was a, it's a great table setting for folks who haven't read the book yet. 
Um, so I have a number of questions. So I have a number of questions that I would like to ask you about the book. And then I know that we already have several um, several uh, audience questions that are starting to come in. Um, I guess my first question for you is really about the setting in Minnesota. Um, so I I know that you I know that you have some ties to Minnesota. Um, the thing that I really noticed um, immediately about the book is that um, is that there's this obviously it's this um, uh, this Korean immigrant living um, living in northern Minnesota, which you know is is a there's there's a little disconnect there that you kind of talked about as you introduced the book. But, you know, here in Minnesota now, the second generation um, immigrant Asian American experience is really becoming more and more common. I mean, um, but I know from both studying whiteness in the state of Minnesota and then also growing up here myself in the 1970s, during that time and before before that, it really wasn't a common experience. And so I'm wondering for you, growing up as the children of immigrants um, here in the state of Minnesota, how did that influence your writing? How did that influence your, and then particularly, how did that influence like, how you put together this book? Well, I, so I grew up in Hibbing, Minnesota, which is um, in the Iron Range. It's probably closer to Canada than to Minneapolis, it's about 200 miles north. And you know what's funny, when I live in New York now and I meet other people from Minneapolis, they don't know where Hibbing is or a lot of people don't know about the Iron Range. It's kind of, it kind of blows my mind a little bit because I'm like, well, I live there. And also Bob Dylan is from there. Um, and so I think, I, I also found it interesting because even for someone like Bob Dylan, whose family like was Jewish, that was also really different at that time. So when my parents immigrated, as opposed to Youngman, Youngman is younger. Uh, my parents immigrated in 1953, right after the Korean, the Korean War ended. They were Korean War refugees to some degree, because my father um, worked for the US 8th Army, um, partly um, as a doctor. So um, because of the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1924, it was actually literally technically illegal for people from East Asia to immigrate at that time. So at that particular time in the U.S., there were fewer than 20,000 um, Koreans in the mainland. And so for my parents, um, they, they were helped to immigrate by some of these officials that my father had worked with. And my father also graduated from Seoul National University. He ended up, he was highly trained anesthesiologist. He ended up um, participating in some of the first um, open heart surgeries at the U um, with Dr. Lily High. And yet, because of the laws, he later became in, um, undocumented. So just to give you an idea of kind of like what a weird um, sort of prairie that they were in. Uh, we were, our family was the only family of, of color, the only Asian family um, in our town. And that definitely, that definitely influenced like how I saw myself pretty much my whole life. I mean, incidentally, my parents got their deportation notices the day I was born. Um, so also my birthday has this kind of very weird um, uh, kind of resonance to it. And so when we were growing up, my parents, because they were so traumatized by the war, they're both from um, separated families. My mother, when she was 14, crossed the DMZ 
um, with an aunt, but then never saw the rest of her family again because the, the border actually ended up closing the next day. Uh, my father had already been in college, but then when the border closed, he was cut off from his family as well. Um, so for them, the whole, they were so traumatized by the war that they didn't want to talk about Korea. And so a lot of times when kids would call me chink at school, I'd come home kind of crying and wanting to know more or just why are they calling me that? My parents would always just say, oh, you're just, you're American. Um, don't, you know, ignore them. And, but then for, my sense of self just almost became bifurcated because I saw myself as being like, just like my friends who are all white. And, you know, I was born in Hibbing, just like them. But then, you know, kids would always like call me cheek all the time. And when, you know, I would see my own reflection, I it, it wouldn't like kind of match up with what I thought I looked like. And this kind of went on until I went to college. And by this time, I already wanted to be a writer, but I was already, I was writing like all these Flannery O'Connor type stories because it didn't, it never occurred to me that like an Asian person could be a protagonist of a story. And so I think um, a lot of what this book, goes into um, is not necessarily that it's autobiographical about my parents because they are of a different generation than Youngman. Youngman is a child during the Korean War. But I think a lot of this is not only like this feeling of alienation, no matter how long, Youngman tries so hard, he like studies the dictionary, he thinks he knows all the slang, like no matter how long he's lived in Horace's breath, he just always feels a little off or like people don't like him and he can't shake that feeling no matter how much he wants to put effort into that. And I think that a lot for me was kind of like almost like a, a constant feeling that no matter what I did, and I would I would do all these nutty things like I became a cheerleader, and my parents made us take skating lessons, you know, and I fish. And so the whole idea of like being Asian and being American didn't quite fit for me. And so but, you know, to do research for this novel, you know, I've lived in Korea. I actually had to go to North Korea to do some of the North Korean research. Um, I sort of speak Korean now and have and feel like I finally like integrated more um, into who I am, both as an Asian and an American. And in fact, now I get kind of annoyed when there's this whole, oh, we have to find the last white like Midwestern voter as if, you know, Asians don't live in the Midwest. Because that is that is a trope that I'm that I'm feeling like I'm really fighting back on because I I've been feeling like sometimes I'll even get these fights on Twitter like I know I know when the, like the fishing season starts and I'm about as Midwestern as anyone can be but because of the way that I look no one thinks of me when they're trying to chase down that last Midwestern voter to hear what she has to say and so I'm feeling like I want to change that because I feel like I am I am someone from the Midwest and I am also Asian American and I'm Korean. Ray, um, I have to say, we haven't met before. And so when we both got on the Zoom to to start to kind of prep to do this tonight, um, I immediately when you started talking, I was like, oh, I can totally tell that she's from here. I can hear it in your voice. <laughs> and it was kind of exciting to me. Um, and I wanted to show you this. I actually have had this rack on my desk for many, many years. So this here, I don't know if you can see how well you can see that. Ah, is that iron ore? Yes, it is. That's a stromatolite oh that I actually was, I picked up when I was on the iron range with my geology club when I was in college. Oh um, and so actually, while I was reading your book many times, I kind of like, and I kind of, you know, was kind of imagining the landscape um, and what, you know, inhibiting an iron range, I would kind of look at my rock and I'd be like, hmm. 
So um, I wanted to share that with you. Oh, I love um, it. So I'm very much connecting and grooving on right now the fact that you have these very Minnesotan, very Midwestern roots. And, um, and I'm also really curious, um, you know, what do you have? Do you feel like you have strong influences um, in your writing from being Minnesotan? Like who who inspired you? And when you were when you were sort of learning the craft of writing, um, were you was that kind of geographically focused or Minnesota focused as well? Right. Oh, and I love that question because um, the book is, one of the touchstones of the book is actually Middlemarch. I'm really into Victorian literature and this whole idea of the doctor um, and trying to do the right thing and things go awry in the small town and so forth. That was a little bit of an organizing principle for the novel, um, but I'm highly, highly, highly um, influenced by Sinclair Lewis, who was from Sock Center, um, which is also by Sleepy Eye and all these little towns that kind of um, that inspire me because a lot of time, you know, I was just doing something at the Boston Book Fair last week and I was like, oh, Horses Breath, that's such a funny name for a book. But I'm kind of like, I'm only competing with Sinclair Lewis and is Wheat Sylvania and Gopher Prairie. Like our town was, you know, is like such a, um, sorry, <laughs> it's like such a good, um, I'm getting the name of the book wrong is why I'm just having a slight brain thing because what I wanted to talk about <laughs> is Main Street. Um, the uh, Main Street was Sinclair Lewis's like most famous book. And you know, and it was about Gopher Prairie and all the like crazy things that happen in a somewhat like socially conservative town and so forth. But this book is another book of his that was super famous that nobody ever knows about. And it's just falling apart. And I found it in a used bookstore somewhere and I love it so much. This is this kind of memento mori. So Aerosmith is Sinclair Lewis's other book that's about medicine. And it's about this guy who like marries this woman and he kind of wants to better society through medicine. But then there's all these corrupting sort of capitalist influences on it. And there's actually weirdly some kind of like presentiment actually about things like COVID. And what's really interesting about Aerosmith is that Sinclair Lewis won the Pulitzer Prize for this book, but we don't even, it, it hasn't been in print forever. So I appreciate getting the chance to talk about it because it's a fantastic, and it's also like Middlemarch, Sinclair Lewis is fantastically funny. And I think because I was writing about genocide in the Korean War, um, I didn't feel like there, I felt like the only way I could do it is by having the book be funny. And also Koreans are terrifically funny. So, so yay, Sinclair Lewis. Thanks for sharing that, Marie. Um, the book is very, I mean, it's it's many, many things, right? It's um, it's a slice of life. It's, it's like achingly, heartbreakingly sad, but it's also very, very funny. Um, and I, I have questions about both of those things. I'm not sure if I'm gonna have time to get both of them. So I'm like, oh, which one, which one am I gonna ask? Um, so I think that I want to talk about, I think that I want to ask you about, um, I think I want to ask you about the idea that the evening hero is a migration return story. Um, I mean, I love that it's a migration return story because I think that so many of us who are in the U.S. or in other places around the world who um, who have migrated or had to migrate um, try to go back, but it's hard to go back, right? Or it's complicated to go back. Um, you're not the person you were when you left. The place is not the place it was when right. you left it. Um, but I also, I mean, I think that you connect that so beautifully with the fact that of this displacement, right? Like 
young man and young a have had this like a lifetime like many many decades of adjusting to living in this rural setting in the united states um but you still so you i mean you really really feel their displacement and you give many many sort of like gestures and clues to how that's happening um and by the way i also really appreciate that like right at the beginning of the novel um you kind of you mentioned you kind of gesture towards the fact that minnesota is the ancestral homeland of another displaced people than ashnabe and so i kind of feel like okay so here's a displaced person who's like living on the land of displaced people um but then in the story when the two of them um go back to korea which i hope i'm not uh i hope i'm not giving too much away there you also feel their displacement there after having been gone and that's such a common experience for people who are who are trying to go back and who are engaging in what uh in in um immigration studies we call return migration and so i'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about um displacement and return as Korean diaspora members. I mean, I I have I have lived in Minnesota for a long time, lived in the United States for my whole life, um, but have gone back to Korea. And it sounds like you've had, obviously you've had that experience as well. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little about that and kind of, I, I guess my follow-ups or like the, the additional questions are, you know, there's so much that you, um, that you, it's clear that these characters have lost. And so I'm wondering like, what do you think we, we lose when we migrate? Um, can we ever really go back? Right, that's, and I, I love that you put it in terms of migration because I actually often bring that up where a lot of times people really simply think of immigration as a binary, it's old country, new country, but that's actually not what it is for most people. Most people are just the sum of the history that's brought them here. Um, so Yongman's journey basically is he's born in North Korea to under a colonial power when Japan has Japan basically owns Korea. And then after Japan loses the, the, um, the war, the U.S. comes in and partitions the peninsula. And then through all of these things, I'm going to leave it a little vague um, so you can read about it. But then Yongman eventually has to, he forcibly migrates to the south. And you have to also remember that it's kind of like, you know, when people, it was never, until the U.S. partitioned it, it wasn't North Korea and South Korea. Like people were even like, there, there's never been like, oh, there's this separate North Korea that's evil. So you can think of it when um, the partition happened, people would be talking like, well, I heard the Russians like, well, rape grandmothers, like maybe we should leave. But then other people would, you know, you think of like if you lived in Minneapolis and then everyone had to either have to go to Canada or to Mexico, like, are you going to go? Or are you going to stay? Like, you don't even know when you're in it. You don't even know what's going on. So for so much of what has happened to young man and young A is that they're kind of buffeted by these historical forces. And the fact that they survive is, is really kind of part of the current that just takes them to the next place. And then the reason they come to the US, ironically, is because young A is pregnant and then she needs to get an abortion, but then it's pre-Roe. So then there's some other things that happen. So, so much of like who they are, where they are um, happens in this way. And then because also Yongman has a slightly different um, documentation problem than my parents, but it also has prohibited him from really traveling back to Korea. And also he, he kind of doesn't want to, but that also he kind of can't because of certain, um, because of his papers. But then later 
when he's able to, he still doesn't want to because he has a secret, but he can't tell anyone about the secret. So he has all these selves like piled up on one on another. And then he, he essentially has no home that he wants to go back to. And that is a little bit of how he feels bad because everyone around him has some huge desire or material possession, the bucket list, like something they want to do. He can't think of anything he even wants to do. And it's, it's a little bit of this inchoate feeling because he's never truly not only like had a physical home, but he's never been quite at home with himself. So a lot of the book is, is, is he going to be able to resolve this? And you do see, um, I can quickly mention like when I was, when I finally was able to go to North Korea, I did, they don't let diasporic Koreans into North Korea because if North Korea was the best, there shouldn't be diasporic Koreans anywhere. So, um, but I had an opportunity to go as a faculty member um, when I was teaching at Brown and I did manage to actually sneak my mother <laughs> as well. And so of course, all the students were completely watching her going, oh, she's gonna have some emotional reaction, but she had a zero emotional reaction because people don't realize 99% of North Korea was decimated by the US and the allies in the bombing. So it was re totally redone. So when my mom got there, she did not recognize anything. And not only that, the one time she's like, oh, I kind of like this. I remember this gourd. And there is a gourd motif in the book. And this is where that comes from. So my mom is like, oh, I remember these gourds growing like this when I was growing up. So she went to touch it and it was plastic. So it was kind of like all these layers of everything like the, that especially in North Korea, like it's completely changed because of geopolitics and the Cold War, which really actually had nothing to do with Korea. It really had everything to do with the US and Russia. And that, that now people, like my entire North Korean family, like my grandparents, like are people that we've never known. Like the whole time we've lived in Minnesota, we've had no extended family. And it hasn't been until later that I'm realizing how kind of strange and how stressful that must have been for my parents to like leave their family that's already so minuscule and then come to Minnesota where we don't have any people that know us so in fact our neighbors we used to call them Uncle Howard and Aunt Marie um, because that was that was just kind of the closest we had to an extended family and now I'm really and now I'm really understanding how precarious the whole the whole immigration story for my parents must have been right Right, right. So I have one more question, and I'm going to start digging into some of these audience questions. Um, so I really identified strongly with with Youngman's character, um, but I also wondered a lot about Young A. Um, and I'm wondering if you were ever tempted to just have to just write Young A's story, because in a lot of your previous, in most of your previous novels, you have these, um, you have mostly women and girl protagonists. And so I'm wondering why did you choose the male protagonist for Evening Hero? That's a good question. You may be surprised to know that originally when it was more Middlemarch-ish, um, the book was actually all about Einstein. It was a much more social novel about someone who wants to monetize their practice. And the Jungmann pieces were just like little mortar pieces in between. Um, and then there were a few young A pieces too. So it was mostly Einstein and him trying to get his business off the ground. Um, and, but it wasn't until the 2016 election 
suddenly made me feel like one that the book had been much more satirical earlier and it made me feel like satire was suddenly not an effective narrative technique for me because satire depends on excess and I felt like everything going on kids in cages like I just kind of felt like satire was not really going to work like I still use humor um, but then the thing that still radically changed the book was on my Facebook group. So I am still friends with a lot of my friends that I had growing up. And I'm on a lot of um, Facebook groups um, from my town. And somebody in my town very um, proudly posted this bumper sticker. And this was at the time when Trump was talking a lot, if you remember about bombing North Korea, just a little bit early in his term. They posted a bumper sticker that said every day, like 50 species of animal go extinct. North Koreans need to be next. And that just made me realize, you know, my father being the anesthesiologist in this town has probably like touched every single person, saved countless lives. Like if you had a baby, an accident, a surgery, like my father like treated you. So do you not know that that's what a North Korean looks like? Do you not know that that's what an undocumented immigrant looks like? So that kind of just, I don't know, fired me up to both thinking of my father as this little Asian man and Youngman as this little Asian man. And it, it seems like very simple, and but I just had this idea that I just wanted to humanize this North Korean dude. And then by just letting that out and then Einstein just kind of receded into the background. And that that's one of the reasons this book has taken 18 years to write because in 2016, it was fairly ready to come out, but I actually told my agent and my editor that I just felt like I wanted to do something much more consequential about race, even though egotistically, it would have been fun to have like a big novel of ideas that's kind of Victorian about capitalism, but that, but that ended up not being the novel that I ultimately wanted to write in the shape of how. So there had been more young A before, but then it's kind of just basically once I let young man take the steering wheel, he just kind of took it over and he's kind of crazy. So it was, it was just really enjoyable spending all this time with him. I love that. I mean, I really can, I mean, I really could feel, I mean, the dedication of the book is to your parents and to your uni. Um, I could really feel that affection that you had for that character. And I'm assuming oftentimes you were thinking about your dad. I, I'm also completely fascinated by what you just shared that originally the novel was about Einstein. Um, and I actually had this question. Um, I had this question about the kind of the Mall of America section of the book. Um, but we also have a reader, a reader question, an audience question about that. And so I think that I'm going to um, segue there into our um, into our audience Q&A. Um, and I'm going to start with a question about um, about kind of the the way that I th saw it is sort of like a somewhat um, dystopian late late uh, late state capitalism medical satire, um, which I found very very funny. Um, but uh, and I think that our our your reader your other readers who are here in the audience um, also have questions. So the question from the audience is, um, uh, did you kind of did you on some level think that this kind of highly capitalized uh, um, kind of medical medical infrastructure and you you know you had this clever there's a clever name for it in the novel that I'm now totally forgetting maybe you could remind Retail me. Retaily scene. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, Retail plus medicine. 
Yeah, is, is that something that you think is um, we have yet to see? Um, is that a is that predictive or is that purely satirical in your mind? Oh no, it's not only predictive. It's happening now. Um, to do research for my novel, I among other things, I actually went on the OBGYN clerkship with the third year medical students. I shattered so many doctors. Um, I did a lot actually with hospital business and learning about mergers and acquisitions and consolidation and things like that. Um, but I think the most sort of like salient point about the late stage capitalism part and, and what is happening like with for-profit medicine versus the kind of medicine, you know, that we think of as like there should be a hospital appear to have a baby, but actually in horse's breath, once that closes, that's actually what's happening now. Um, there are a lot of places where in Minnesota where you have to drive 100 miles in labor because there's no social contract. There's no financial contract. There has to be a hospital where there are people. But when I, one thing I found was really interesting is there's another writer from Hibbing um, named Bethany McLean. And I've been become friends with her. She, um, she writes a lot of, she writes her Vanity Fair. She wrote um, The Smartest Guys in the Room about the Enron scandal. So she also has a financial background and we both actually worked at Goldman Sachs, the investment bank. So we have this kind of similar interest in late stage capitalism and finance. So when the novel was still in um, draft form, I sent her a copy so she could just kind of look at it and, and make sure some of my finance stuff was correct. She said she was basically writing a nonfiction version of this novel about rural hospital closures and consolidation. And then what we realized emotionally, what is happening is her father was the ophthalmologist in our town. And so when my father was the anesthesiologist, and I think this is like this elegy for the kind of medicine our parents used to practice, but, and they would get a pension and you'd never see money. Like my son is disabled and has all, is very mentally fragile. So whenever we go to the NYU Langone Hospital, first thing we do is go, not to the doctor, we go to the, the finance place. Like everything is completely changed. And um, there's both in the book and in my private life, in my like my parental parental life with my parents, um, if people couldn't pay, my dad would just comp them. And all the doctors did that. And a lot of times, so that's why we would get a lot of like slippers and game and just things that people would give my dad because he he would comp so many people. However, so I actually called another classmate of mine who did become a doctor and he works in Maine. And he said, now you couldn't even do that. Um, I, I guess it's like some kind of racketeering thing to like give people free services or something. And some, with HR, the electronic billing, it would be really difficult to do. So to some degree um, within, within all the like, you know, the capitalist infrastructure that I'm writing about, a lot of it really is kind of an emotional elegy um, for the idea that the hospitals just used to be places where you could get healed. And, you know, my father, every single night would sit with every one of his patients going into surgery the next day, as long as they wanted. And some of them were really scared or lonely and would talk to him forever. So that means we never saw him at home. Every night he did this before surgery. And you couldn't even do that today, you know, the way insurance is. So, yes. So a lot of this is it's not even like predictive. It's just like, it's actually, when I spoke with Carrie Miller um, on NPR, she said in 2012, they did a story about what was gonna happen with hospital closures. And she said, that's the reason that she, she picked my book is because it seemed to embody pretty much what everyone is saying was gonna happen, was happening. So, and that is kind of the job of the 
of the novelist is to kind of pick up on, you know, on the on the slight in the near future, on, you know, like what is happening with society that that's kind of what our job is. Just so uh, just so listeners know, um, the Mall of America is not filled with is not filled now filled with with uh, medical for paid cosmetic places. It's still, you can still buy shoes and things there. But you can get, I don't know, I one of my friend's dentist does Botox now. Like it's just oh, everyone's right. really getting into the pay to play kind of stuff. Sure, 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 sure. Um, so there's another question somebody's saying, so this drew my attention because they start their question with asking this for my book club. And I just want to put in a plug. Um, this is a great book for book clubs. I, and I, Maria, I admit to you, um, as I was preparing to have this conversation, I was a little nervous. And as I was preparing to have this conversation with you, I was like, I kind of like put the word out to my peeps. I'm like, hey, I'm reading this book. Does anybody want to read it or you have you already read it? And then we can have like a book club discussion about it. Um, and we just, we did it. It was people from kind of all over. And so we did it on Zoom and it was actually an awesome discussion. So this, um, the book works and it was really helpful for me to kind of like think through uh, not just what I was had read, but then also um, get other people's take on it, which was like totally fabulous. And so it's, this is great nice. for a book, book club. So, um, so here's somebody saying, asking this one for my book club, um, is the exchange market zone real? Was it a real part of the Korean War? Oh, thank you for why asking you that. To, why did you decide to put it in the book? Thank you for asking that because I kind of like gestured towards it as a fictional thing that I wanted. But get this, it was a real place. Not only that, it was a real place. And then when I was in North Korea, because of some mistake, I kept going, you know, I got myself to North Korea, but what I really want to do is go there so I could see, feel what that was like. And of course, we're never going to get close to that because when you're in North Korea, you have to do everything they tell you to do. So we mostly went and saw these monuments, but something weird happened. And then we skipped going to this farm. We did go to Kaesong. So yes, it did. It did exist. Um, it was like kind of within these two zones. And now it is kind of vaguely within Kaesong, which is the place where North and South Korea are starting to do more trade. So they're building like a lot of factories there and stuff like that. So yeah, there was actually a place where Koreans would just like sit back and just be Koreans again for a little while. Yeah, it did exist. I really love that scene in, in that market where like it's this one place where it's like things are kind of somewhat normal. Um, Okay, here's another question um, from an audience member. Um, looking back, do you think the finished novel would be significantly different if the writing period hadn't been such a protracted one? You already talked a little bit about how you changed everything in 2016, but obviously you've been working on the novel for a very long time before that. Um, and so this person's trying to be sensitive. They're saying, without asking for spoilers, are there any parts that you found particularly difficult to tackle? And so I think that the embedded question is, uh, what what were you doing that it took so long? And it was it was it because it was somewhat autobiographical that uh, made it such a long process for you? No, it wasn't it wasn't that part. It was that I think because I know so little about my parents' backstory, I think I wanted to write my way back into a, into a Korea 
and maybe a Minnesota that could have been. And I wanted to make sure it was like completely accurate. So as I mentioned, I literally went on a rotation um, with the third year medical students. I did everything that they did. I followed all these doctors. Um, I went to North Korea. So that being able to do that kind of research and also, so every part of the book that has to do with the Korean war has been um, from oral histories or other testimonies that I have gleaned because one of the other sort of soft goals of the book is I wanted to decenter traditional narratives of war away from historians or how we already think we know what happened, military history, um, into what the survivors have to say because their experience is really different. And also when you're in war, you don't even like know what's going on. So one thing I thought was really interesting was that um, a lot of people described stuff falling from the sky. And it seemed to be that even though here it's still uh, under debate, did the US use biological weapons in Korea? Well, it seems from talking to the people that I did, and I talked to veterans as well as Korean War survivors, Koreans, um, that this was like fairly common. And so what was interesting is that here it's all hush hush. In fact, this guy who's writing a whole book about the Freedom of Information Act said, how'd you get all this information? I've been trying to get it from the CIA. And I just said, well, people told me. But then also, um, if, if you watch like Bong Joon-ho's, he's the Korean director who did Parasite, but he earlier did one called The Host, which is a kind of fun, it's not funny, but it's like a metaphorical one where there's this Godzilla that comes out because the US is dumping stuff into the Han River. But there's a like, there's a kind of funny scene like as he does um, of these people like getting gassed while there's like a an announcement that's like don't worry everything's fine like the U.S. is here da 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 and they're kind of falling on the ground much in the way that I imagine that appears in the scene in the book and it just made me realize wow you know as an American this is all hush hush we still don't know if it happened but in Korea it's in this movie like this is just part of the cultural memory because every because people saw it so I think that was really that's what's taken me so long um first like needing to get to know Youngman he's a guy I have no idea like I had to do so much research to what would you have eaten what would his life have been like and and then also just like the Korean War was incredibly complicated. And then just digging up a lot of that and trying to figure out like what was biased versus unbiased. Um, and for instance, this young academic wrote this really interesting book called The Interrogation Rooms of the, of the Korean War. And it has a lot to do with like these weird interrogations the US did and then how PSYOP, so we think of it, oh, it's, it's North Korea, the Manchurian candidate, but actually the US was the one who introduced the PSYOPs. Um, during the Korean War, and also, and I will mention this young scholar who's just won a MacArthur Grant. So I feel like I had, you know, like I had good um, instincts, kind of honing in on this particular book and seeing how consequential it would be to writing a narrative that would kind of, I guess, because so much of growing up, um, particularly with the kind of veteran culture that we have, like in the rural areas. Um, you know, it's Veterans Day and everyone's so brave. And then you should be happy because, you know, the Americans like did this in Korea. It, it's not quite as simple as that. And now this book was one way of kind of uh, being able to step back from that. Because for instance, my father was a liaison officer in the Korean War. And I always find it interesting that he never ever um, even used that as social capital inhibiting, you know, like joining the VFW or something like, 
that was just not part of who he was. And it, it also makes me wonder a little bit about how people, Koreans actually feel about the military presence in Korea. Because there is a certain degree that, yeah, the, you know, it was a U.S. that fought, but then a lot of people don't realize that it was a U.S. occupation and that the Koreans really had no say in it. And also after World War II, Korea just wanted to go back to having Koreans <laughs> um, be in charge, but that's not what happened either. So, you know, there, everyone calls Korea the Forgotten War, and I guess I kind of wanted to look more at, to see what had happened. So we, because there's a kind of violence in that kind of forgetting, similar to the kind of violence that happens with the young man tries to forget this horrible thing that he did. So, yeah, so that's, no, it's more the research. And then, yes, to some degree, getting to know the character. And for myself, too, over 18 years, I've aged 18 years. And so before I thought, oh, I'm going to make Einstein super old. He'll be like 40. <laughs> and now I'm kind of looking at that in a really different light. So, yes, um, I don't think I would have liked it to take 18 years, but it did need the 18 years that it took. So there's a couple of questions from um, from folks out in the audience about kind of your history of having written young adult novels as well. And um, I think maybe that might be, it might be a good time to kind of ask about that because I'm assuming that your process for writing this novel, which in some ways, I mean, is very epic. It covers like some, almost somebody's, you know, the characters, the protagonist almost whole lifetime. And I can see how, you know, you had to do a ton of research. I mean, not that you don't, wouldn't have to do research for a young adult novel, but, um, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the difference between, and of course you're still writing YA, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the difference between, between writing young adult novels and how you approach that versus how you approach and what your, you know, your process for The Evening Hero. Uh, my first novel, which came out 30 years ago, which seems kind of crazy, is a young adult, it's called Finding My Voice, and it's about, that one is actually much more autobiographical. It's about a Korean American girl who's growing up in a small town, not unlike Hibbing, and she has parents who really want her to study hard and don't quite understand uh, what it's like to be uh, a teenager. Um, so that one was a lot of me feeling like I didn't have any kind of Asian representation in literature. I do remember the only book I ever saw that had an Asian in it was, um, Farewell to Manzanar. And then I remember reading the back saying that she didn't even write it. Jean Watsuhuki Houston didn't write it. Like her husband apparently did the writing. I guess she just talked to him. So this is the only representation I had of any kind of Asian characters who were younger. So I decided I was a big fan of Judy Bloom, who actually became a friend. And she was very encouraging. And I kind of decided I wanted to write my own kind of Judy Bloomish book with an Asian character. And I will also mention, because there's a lot about race and there's some violence in it, because I also, as an Asian person, have experienced a lot of physical violence my entire life, including when I was a young kid in Hibbing. Um, I just wanted to write into that experience. And I will mention, it was not a very happy selling experience. Um, every single publisher said no. Um, including one publisher said, oh, we already did a book about Cambodia last year. And it was by a white lady. Um, every, every publisher said, no, the racism was a little too much. I used the C word, et cetera, except the last, the very last publisher for which my agent was like, if this person doesn't take it, 
we'll have to part ways. But it was Houghton Mifflin and they took the book. And so it was just that kind of started it. And then I, I ended up writing more young adult books. A lot of it was more, um, I would hear from librarians saying, you know, a lot of boys like finding my voice, but they, they want a book with a boy in the cover. So I wrote Necessary Roughness. Um, this current book is, is not only because I've always wanted to do a retelling and I'm a big Steinbeck fan with his social realism and sort of like his almost like ham handedness, the way he does things. Um, and my son is intellectually disabled. So I think um, that's, a, that's a very personal issue for me, especially because he is a male and people who have intellectual disability have a much higher chance of um, either being a victim of a violent crime or being shot by the police, even though society tends to be more scared of people who have intellectual disability, they're actually much more vulnerable um, to either being killed or being, being a victim of a crime. So I, so that for some reason, I just, I felt like that was such a good sort of YA topic because everybody reads, um, you know, of mice and men. And then also this is a fun way for me to shift it because instead of the bunkhouse and these cowboys, you know, it's a girl and her brother and they're going to the Korean cram school and the cram school is sort of the, you know, the concentrated social center, good and bad, you know, of racism and, you know, hierarchy and what's going to, you know, ableism. And so it just works so well that it was, it was just kind of, and I'd also been, re I'd happened to be reading um, Of My Cement to my son. And so I think that all just kind of came together in a, I don't even feel like, oh, I'm going to do another YA novel. It was just like, that was so, it just like the, her voice was so perfect for that. So yeah, so that one, that one has a female like protagonist. Really looking forward to reading that one. It sounds great. And Thanks. that is all we have time for this evening. Thank you so much, Marie, for joining us during your busy oh, fall you. schedule. It's been such a pleasure for me to talk to you. Um, have a great night, everyone. Thank you so much, everyone. That wraps up our St. Paul Public Library event with Marie Myungok Lee. Make sure to catch our last Club Book podcast of the season with Nick Hornby. Nick Hornby is known for chart-topping novels like High Fidelity, About a Boy, and Juliet Naked, each of which has been adapted for the screen. His latest book, Dickens and Prince, explores unlikely similarities between music superstar Prince and the greatest novelist of the Victorian age. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>